It is better to give than to receive. Everybody, anyone heard, heard that phrase before? Now, I'm curious. This is a legit question. This isn't rhetorical. This is a legit question. I'm curious. Where do you usually hear that phrase? Is there a particular time of year that you hear that? Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. That's what, when I grew up, this is, this is what we, we would talk about. Uh, my mother, God bless her, she just loved to give gifts on Christmas. I mean, she went beautifully bananas. I mean, like, she was waking us up for Christmas as kids. I mean, she loved us, and she loved seeing the, the, the look on her face. And at the time, I mean, now being a parent, I told I'm like, yes, like, my little girl's face is like everything, to see her smile and laugh and, and play. And when she would explain it, she'd say, it's better to give than to receive. It's better to give. And I thought, like, that's just wrong. You got your facts wrong. If I have something and then I give it to you, then I don't have it. Bad. You know, like, I just, it was like math to me. Like, I have one, you take away one, give it to you. That, like, that's, I'm the zero now. That's not good. But I'm curious, and I didn't know this is growing up. This is another legit question. Do you know who said it? No, you can answer. It's all right. Someone said something. Yes and no. He quotes it. Yes. Yes, my good friend. Um, yeah, later, as, as for those of us in the CBR, we're reading through Scripture. You might have caught this as uh, uh, we worked through Acts, that uh, later Paul quotes Jesus on this. He says, it's better to give than to receive. And I just, that's, it's like if you, if, you're just fl- if you want to find it real quick, just flick through Acts really fast and look for the red letters. It's, the only, it's like past like the first couple chapters, it's going to be this one line and like 20, Acts 20 or something. You can look it up. So Paul quotes this line from Jesus, and Jesus being a, a very good teacher, you can see a lot of his teaching in the book of Acts. This is a very quotable line. It's very memorable. But what, what's striking is Rather than, than, I mean, some of us are, are, are apt to quote lines and, and throw these zingers and like really poetic, pithy one-liners, but Jesus on the other hand, this teaching actually is a little different because his life actually demonstrated that his life fully expressed this idea that giving of oneself, not getting, but serving, not, not being served, is actually the core of Jesus' life. That rather than just spend a, a, a little proverb, as it, as it almost sounds, uh, he actually lived it. And so what we're going to do is we want to look closely at this Jesus who said this line. We're going to look at his story and to, to behold it. Because we are shaped for this life together in community, but we're shaped for that life together by being shaped by the story of Jesus by seeing him, beholding him, and being like him. And the way we're going to do that uh, this morning is looking at this poem in Philippians. So if you have a Bible or on your phone or these things called books with pages, you can go there, Philippians 2. And it's a little change for us because uh, both last week and then before, as we remember Exodus, remember this book we were in for like ever? Uh, usually we're, we've been going through and we work through these long stories over chapters and what Paul's doing, as, as it's called, it's the letter to this church in Philippi, uh, he's actually writing a letter, a, a snail mail. He's encouraging the church that he started in Philippi, uh, addressing a community of Jesus followers to live in community. And so it's very apt to exactly where we are, a small community recently started 
that needs encouragement and a push towards living life together. And so we're going to address this. We're going to work through the first 11 verses there in chapter 2, focusing on a little poem that Paul gives us. And so uh, before we get into it, I want to say that, one, the, the letter of Philippians is real short. So if you haven't uh, read it, what happens is in the letter, uh, Paul encourages through a lot of examples, but this poem is actually the core of the letter. So if you want to see it fleshed out, I encourage you to go home this afternoon, uh, read it, or maybe pull up on those Bible apps, have it read to you. Uh, but just hear how the example after example, how he sees this fleshed out uh, in deeper ways through the community. So that said, we're going to be in Philippians 2. If you're there, say holla. I've never said holla in my life. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Philippians 2, we're starting verse 1. And just start working through uh, these, these few verses here. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So it's a big idea here. Paul's saying if, you, if you're in this community, if you've participated, if you've benefited from being in this community by experiencing goodness of the love of Jesus, do this one thing. Be laser focused on this one mindset. Like, like a horse with those blinders on, you can't see left. This is it. This is the mindset. What's the mindset? Verse 3, let's keep reading. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So what's the mindset that Paul wants to instill in his community and in us? Humility. Humility. He's saying don't take a single breath consumed with your own interests, but be focused, be laser focused on this mindset of looking to the needs and interests of others. So if you think Black Friday, the opposite. I've never been out Black Friday shopping, but I've seen YouTube videos. Never. The opposite of Black Friday, Paul says. Be so consumed with thinking of others and caring for others that it's selflessly that you serve Serve them. Now, if we're, if we're going to be honest, or if I'm going to be honest since I'm talking, that's hard. <laughs> that's hard. Because our, our default way of thinking is not, how about this other person? Our default way, if we just take stock of our own lives, you just number of thoughts uh, per minute within a day or whatever, it's, it's us, me. Not us, it's me, really. This is like iMind. It's a new Apple thing they're going to launch. I mean, it's really, it's like the first Apple device. I mean, it's, it's us. Constantly uh, th throughout the day, in every little decision that we make, and that's because as, as, as we looked at a little bit last week, we have these huge cultural trends that just drive us into thinking about number one, me. And then internally, we have our own defaults of just being human and in a fallen, sinful world, where we constantly come back to think, "How will this affect me? How will this benefit me?" When thinking about uh, our relationships, when thinking about our families or wider community or here at Redeemer, 
it's so easy to fall back on this default to think of ourselves. And Paul wants to push us completely, diametrically opposed to the default, the default of our society and the default of our own way of thinking. And for me, that's a, that's a big ask. And so the natural question for me is, why? What's the logic behind this, Paul? What's the logic for our community? I mean, why is humility better than pride? Our culture says complete, you know, be confident, be invested in yourself. But Paul wants to push in another direction. And so I think that a very legitimate question for ourselves is both why, what is the logic behind this, but also a deeper why. What motivates me to think of others over than myself? What drives me to that? If this is the way that God's people are to act amongst one another and the world, why? I need the answer if this is actually going to be a reality here. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. He says, Have this mindset. What mindset? Humility, selfless caring of other people. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here's the pivot for Paul and for us. The mindset that we're to have is found in Jesus. He's the model for it. To realize this deep vision, to be shaped for our life together, we have to see that the mindset that Paul is calling to, the mindset that God calls us to in, in community is one of selfless love for other people that's already found in Jesus. Paul's saying, be humble, but not just be humble in a general sense, be humble like Jesus, be like Jesus. And what's, what's so good about the way this structure is, we're going to see as we work through verse 6 and following, is it's not simply here, be like Jesus, and that's the end. Pack up and go home. But what he says is, be like Jesus, follow in his footsteps, selfless love to one another, by beholding Jesus. Because on one hand, while he gives us the story of Jesus, he, he lays out this model of what it looks like to be humble, to be like Jesus, but at the same time, in doing so, he also shows us who Jesus is. And in doing so, answers that question, why? What's the logic? What's the empowering motivation that brings me to be humble when everything in me says not to be? What's the empowering motivation and justification for me to think of the interest of others over than myself when everything in me says, no, I need to take care of myself and myself alone? For those of you here that are asking the question, maybe that you're kind of just starting to follow Jesus, you're sure not sure if you wanted a text to see the life of Jesus, to see the story of Jesus, or if you're, if you're interacting with friends at work and you want to say, this is Jesus, this is the Jesus that I love and follow, the following verses are your, that's your bread and butter. This little poem that he gives is some of the be most beautiful lines to tell the story of Jesus poetically, as we're reading it behind me. We're going to get there. It's worth meditating, it's worth memorizing and reflecting on to know who Jesus is. So I want to walk through that very slowly so that we, one, see what Paul is calling to for us to do in this life together, but also beholding Jesus will be transformed in his likeness. Verse 6. 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So pause here for a second. This language of being in the form of God, another way of saying it would be that, that Jesus exists in the very image of God, the glory of God, his representative. That in Jesus we see who God is. Now that's a very preeminent position for Jesus to hold, that he is the representative designated by God to show off God's glory. And as, as you're hearing this language of form or image or glory, what Paul means to do is recall us to another story. The language reminds us of actually a passage that we looked at last week. You know what this is? This is page one of your Bibles. This is Genesis 1. And so because this actually, by this opening line, Paul sets the framework in which we're to see the similarities and stark differences, it's helpful that we get this story in our minds. So I want to read to you, we'll take a pause from, from Philippians, from Paul's letter, and look at this passage that's the undergirding background to Paul's poem. This is Genesis 1, we read it last week, but I want, to, I want us to hear it again. Creation of humanity, he says... Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Sounds a lot like that Psalm 8 that we read to start our service. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and he blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Make lots of little yous to fill the earth with my image. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed. So God gives provision to his humanity. Every seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with the seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. So what's this story tell us? Do you see, see the point of connection? Both Jesus and Adam, first humanity here, are in this preeminent position of authority. This language of image is really like a royal representative. You could say that God creates humanity to be his VP of the universe, or if you watch the show, Veep. I have been, that's why. <laughs> but he creates humanity he creates man to represent him so that God's reign becomes humanity's benevolent responsibility to care and to serve the world on God's behalf. That's a preeminent position that he places all this trust, all this responsibility into the hands of humanity. And likewise, Paul wants to draw this similarity to Jesus who stands not being made in the image of God, but actually existing in the form of God, actually being the, represent, the representative of God. That both have this position of authority and responsibility to extend and serve in the interest of others. He draws the similarities to bring out the contrast. And before we get back to the contrast that Paul wants to draw, let's remember the story. How long does this good world that God creates go? How long do, do we last in idyllic God reigning and humanity carrying their responsibility to give goodness, his, extend his goodness into the world? Real short, a spoiler. It doesn't last long. Let me just read to you. This is, this is, this is Genesis 3, 6. The woman saw that she was good for food. God has provided them food, but nevertheless, he, she sees this tree 
and the food on it. And it says, there's delight to the eyes. The tree was desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit, she ate it, and she gave some to her husband with her, with her, and he ate. Here, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It represents a decision that humanity is either going to be in their position under God or seize autonomy, define good and evil on their own, and break away. But here in Genesis, says that they, they fail the choice. They seize the opportunity. They snatch it to decide for themselves, to ambitiously self-aggrandize themselves with the very position that was meant to serve others. Jesus takes a very different path, and I want to hear how Paul lays that out in verse 7. So he that was in the form of God, this is verse 6, he doesn't count this equality as something to be grasped. You hear the similarities and the contrast there. But rather, verse 7, he empties himself. He takes on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus comes humbly, as we'll, as we'll celebrate, as we move towards Christmas and celebrating the birth of Jesus, he leaves his heavenly abode to come and live and dwell among us in the little baby, humble and frail. Though he ruled the universe, he gives that up. He doesn't take that and seize that position of authority for himself. Rather, he empties it. He uses that position to serve others. Paul here, uh, helpful to see even more poetic imagery that he's drawing on from uh, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. It says it like this, that he grew up, this is the servant of the Lord who Jesus embodies, he grew up before us like a young plant, poetic imagery, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty. Jesus was probably not good looking. He wasn't tall and mighty, take charge. He was humble. No majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, but he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, someone who men hide their faces from and not esteemed. Jesus, who exists in all his preeminence, serves. He doesn't come to be served, he doesn't come to take, but rather to serve, to empty himself. Verse 8, where does this service, where does this decision on Jesus' part lead him? Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself in service of others, bearing the weight of their sin by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. At the very core of Jesus' character, we have to look to the cross. Yes, he taught good things, and yes, he lived a life of caring for others, but that ultimately, ultimately led him to give up his life for ours. 
Jesus' humble, selfless love took him to the cross, bearing all our burdens, absorbing in all the hurt and the shame and the pain of this world, how we've made a mess of it, rather than coming and seizing the opportunity that his position offers him to conquer it, he actually is conquered by it, defeating death through his own death. Back to this poem in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We thought him stricken by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus absorbs in himself, in in this selfless giving, pouring himself out to serve others, it ultimately leads him to give up his own life, to absorb all this pain and hurt that is in our lives, take that and let it kill him on the cross in humiliating agony and pain. But that is not the end of the story. The whole world says no to humility and selfless giving of yourselves. And they said no, ultimately, to Jesus and put him to death on a cross, destroying him. But where the world says no, God has said yes. Where all of our instincts, all of our defaults, the the cultural trends both here and then, where all of that pushes against humility, against looking out for the interest of others, says no to Jesus' life. God says, yes, this is my character. This is my glory revealed in Jesus. Verse 9. Therefore... Therefore, what? Because Jesus has given of his life, because he has selflessly poured himself out to death, even death on a cross, God has highly exalted him. That is to say, he has given him life and raised him up from the dead and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The whole earth, the whole creation And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Poetically expressed, this tells the story of what happens after the cross, after Jesus has given his life, after he has taken away our sin and shame. God says yes and raises him up from the dead, exalts him, gives him the name above every name, so that in Jesus the whole earth will see God's glory. Not in a glorious crown of gold, but in a crown of thorns. Not in a seat of honor, but of shame. This is our God, a God who gives of himself to be crucified. And though it's it's so beautifully poetic, you you can hear the story come forward. That in the life, death, and resurrection, we see who God is we see his character revealed. And this last bit especially is so, so important because here again, Paul drawing on language of the scriptures says, pulls from this, again, this book of Isaiah that's so crucial 
Well, this passage of being that, that every knee will bow to Jesus. Read this in, in just a little bit of context. Isaiah 45, 22. God says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. There is no other God, there is no other Savior. By myself I have sworn it, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return, shall not return void. Here's this word. To me, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance or confess. But in the poem, it's, it's Jesus. It's Jesus that we see God as Savior, his character revealed. Paul wants to see, wants to see that Jesus reveals God's true character as Savior in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, in his selfless love and care for others that led him to the cross. Because in doing so, we know his character. In the course of humility, in the course of laying down his life, bearing the burdens of others, God is showing us who he is. And that's really good news for us. Because you and I, unlike Jesus, but very much like Adam, very much like the rest of humanity, has had been given to us a position whether we make decisions that affect hundreds and thousands of people or affect one or two. We've been given provisions, resources in our hands, and rather than use those for the good and service of others, we've seized that opportunity for ourselves to climb our own ladder, to make our own way, to decide good and evil for ourselves. From page three of our scriptures, this story just gets rolled out. And as we are so, if we just honest and take stock of our own lives and we look out on this world, this is the story of humanity. This, this little narrative that we see in Genesis of, of humanity seizing opportunity for themselves, this is our story. And because of that, that's an affront. That's a, a sin, a rebellion against God. And so we need someone to come in that will live out that selfless love that we were called to, and will do it for us on our behalf. It's exactly what Jesus did for us. He takes away our sin. It's, it's in the midst of our sin and rebellion, misses us pushing God away, that God being rich in mercy because of great, great love, selfless love, he comes and rescues us out of that and puts us back on the path, back on the course that he has created us for. So right now, if, if you're like me, as, as I'm feeling, as I hear this story, as I, as I see what God has called me to and where I failed to, we're feeling overwhelmed. And at the same time, we're feeling overwhelmed for how we have fallen short. We're feeling overwhelmed for how glorious and awesome Jesus is, that he would selflessly give of himself to rescue us. But this is exactly why this poem is so important for our lives and for our life together, because following Jesus is hard. Being called to be humble like Jesus is very, very hard. But in Jesus, we not only have the model, we not only have the call to be humble like Jesus, but in beholding Jesus, we're empowered to live like Jesus. 
Because Jesus didn't just give himself for people in general. He gave it for, for me, for you. Paul says, be humble, be like Jesus. But be like Jesus by first beholding him, by seeing how he selflessly loved us. And in doing so, when we, when we sink our teeth into that, the good news is we talk at the, at the outset of every service, this being gospel people, being shaped by it, has to first come by fully seeing it and grasping this selfless love that Jesus has has done for us. Jesus is both that perfect model and the perfect motivation and empowerment for our lives together in community, to have a life together, to be shaped for community. We must be shaped by the story of Jesus, to be humble like him. But in doing so, we must behold him. Now, there's, there's a million different situations represented in this room, different ways. I'm not sure how this plays out for you because we're not talking about do X, Y, Z. So often the scriptures are so difficult to, to bring in and to apply to our lives because there's not always this one-to-one. And here, even more so, it's talking about this deep heart issue of how we think of the needs of others. Some practical ways, I want, I want you to just going to lay out how we can maybe respond to this call and also to our God who is so giving of himself is, is really just to first try to take stock of our own lives, to look at the position that God has placed us in, to look at the position that we have in making decisions, to look at the position that's offered to us and the influence that we might have over the people around us, to think on what authority, I know no one thinks about going to work and ruling over people, maybe you do, you shouldn't, but what position has God placed in your hands for you to steward? And to think, am I using that, is my, my thought process in that position to think, how can I seize this opportunity to further advance myself, or how can I employ this position for the good of others? Another way to think about this is just as we, we talk that God puts provisions in our hands, not just decisions placing us in positions of authority to make decisions that might affect one another or in our lives, or maybe, maybe you have positions of authority that affect a number of people, but he actually also gives us things in our hand, provisions, resources, time. And it's helpful, I think, for my, myself personally, is to take an account of what am I doing with my time? to take stock of how much time is, is really just me spinning my wheels trying to think of how can I get more for myself or am I spending that time in service of others? The resources, the dollars that God puts in our account because he's given us breath in our lungs to maybe work a job or to be in a position where we've got resources in our hand, things, maybe space in our apartment or something. What are we doing with it? As you process these things, it's helpful not to, to, to make sure that we don't detach it from the God who actually has lived this already for us. 
that in his position and in his provision, he has used those to serve and love and care for us. Look to Jesus both as your model for as you process these things and work through them, but also as your motivation, your empowerment to live a life following in his example. Let's think through this, and, and we're going to take a time here to, to pray um, quietly here to ourselves, and then I'll close. Wrestle with these things with God. Ask him, how can I be shaped for our life together? How does your story shape me to live as you've called me to? And try to take stock with God or maybe with, within your community group, with a friend. Take stock of our lives to see where we can live more in fulfillment of God's call and be more like Jesus as we behold him more and more. Let's take a little bit to pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have called us to follow you, that you've brought us here. You've led us here to, to see you. And we pray and ask and plead with you for your help in following you. Wherever we are on that map, however long or however short that we have been following you, it is difficult, and we confess that to you, that we need you. We need you to open our eyes to see Jesus and his love for us, his selfless love for us. And we need your Holy Spirit to empower us to follow in his footsteps so that our life together in community we would be one that would have one mindset, one one sole mindset of thinking of the interest of others as you, as you have done for us. We plead with you and pray that your Holy Spirit would be present with us as we continue singing songs and, and remembering your glory and your goodness. Let this be a time that transforms us and beholding you and being more like you. Do that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.